people are paralyzed by overtraining fears. They, it's hard to get a good workout when you're focused on your phone. There's so many things we talk about relative yeah. to training intensity. I remember yeah. four years ago when we trained together, I remember you doing a banded deadlift, like not reverse banded, banded to make it harder. Plus you had like 500 pounds on it and you went to failure. There wasn't, well, if I do this set, am I going to overtrain? It was, I'm going to go balls out. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, I love to have great conversations with brilliant people, and today is no exception. We frame the podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you love, and this gentleman is leading the fitness industry and helping people build a body that they love. John Meadows joins me today to discuss his history in bodybuilding, You know, having been aspiring to be a bodybuilder for over 30 years now, made a lot of mistakes, made a lot of right decisions, trained a lot of incredible athletes, and still continues to train a lot of incredible athletes. John and I talk a lot about just becoming a great human being, being a great leader in the industry, and how he chooses to surround himself with people who are aspiring for greatness. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with John. John and I have uh, known each other for a long time. I came into his home and chatted, you know, got to spend time with his family and really got to know this guy at a personal level, even more than I have in the past. And truly an incredible human being who uh, is just a great role model for the young generation in our sport who seems to lack uh, mentorship and direction. And John's definitely a guy that I look up to uh, and continue to collaborate with in the future. Um, some of the things that we talk about today is John's supplement company and why he created a supplement company and you know, how he does things from a moral place, um, which is awesome to hear. Um, we talked about how social media is, is affecting bodybuilding. So for a long time, Social media obviously didn't exist. People who are aspiring to be bodybuilders had a really great internal locus of control. They believed that they could uh, affect their future and they were driven internally. And now it seems like a lot of the younger generation is shifting toward an external locus of control, or at least they don't believe they can change themselves and they're looking for external gratification um, in, um, you know, from social media. So it's a really interesting conversation around that. Um, what are John's foundational tenets in building a great body? How does he des design his programs? How does he approach nutrition? Uh, we got into a lot of really, really great things that you guys are going to absolutely love. Um, as always, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being part of the muscle intelligence community. If you haven't already signed up uh, for hypertrophy execution mastery, I strongly suggest you guys do that. That's my new program on execution mastery for your body. Head over to hypertrophymastery.com. There's a link in the show notes. If you want to learn how to build any body port or build your greatest body, we talk a little bit about how people believe that muscle building is limited, meaning, you know, typically you hear, oh, you can add seven to eight pounds a year, and that is a complete BS paradigm because when you look at the research, most people don't know how to train. If you put somebody in a gym who doesn't know how to train, unless they're a newbie, 
their their progress is going to be massively limited. If you give someone the skills, the knowledge and the skill set to actually know how to train, I believe the amount of muscle that we can add is tremendously higher than it's previously been believed. And we're actually going to be doing some research with the University of Tampa um, on verifying my beliefs of people who actually train well, train hard, uh, with no other interventions around the nutrition, and seeing how much actual muscle we can add with muscle intelligence. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast with John Meadows. Head over to hypertrophymastery.com and then also check out all of the links in the show notes where you can access Mr. John Meadows. Mr. John Meadows, I'm extremely grateful to be in your home. Um, I just arrived in Columbus, Ohio, man, and I've come into your beautiful home, and I got to meet your, well, I've met your kids and your wife before. I got to see these boys growing up. Uh, I'm just grateful to be here, man, and I guess the audience needs to know that, um, you know, you are one of my uh, role, I don't say role model, but someone I I, uh, aspire to be more like, because you're always real. Uh, As a bodybuilder, you're always in incredible shape, and uh, just a good person, man. So, again, I'm grateful to have your friendship, and I'm, I'm grateful to have you here to have a conversation, so... Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And, um, it's, it's amazing that I haven't seen you in so long. Uh, well, I mean, I saw you briefly at Swiss, but, um, it's amazing how time flies, isn't it? It's been four years since we really got to really talk. Yeah. I think it was 2015. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking four years. Yeah. Time flies, man. And your boys are getting big and now you got a supplement company. Tell me about Granite. Yes. Uh, so granted, uh, about uh, somewhere around November or December of 2016, I just thought to myself, you know what, I, um, I would like to kind of jump in the ring here in the supplement business. I've always loved supplements. Like I've probably spent more, I've probably wasted more money buying supplements <laughs> than, I mean, I've spent way more money than I ever had uh, on supplements. But I just said, I want to give this a shot because uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy supplements. So let me let me see what I can do with the company. Let me see what kind of products I can make. And, and the other thing was there were some things going on in the industry that I wasn't a real big fan of. And I've always been, rather than the guy who tries to complain all the time, like I would rather, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, I hear guys – in our generation talk about how they hate YouTube and they hate Instagram and blah, blah, blah. And and yeah, there's some downsides to it, but there's also many, many positive sides. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do my own YouTube and I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do it. And it's doing well too. So I like to, um, let's say mix it up and work hard and try to do things my way and see what happens. That was one of the cool things I loved about your website is, it's it's very educational, very informative, but it's just real. And it was like there, there's very valuable videos on there, very valuable content from yourself and other people uh, contributing to the site. Um, but I think it's one it's one of the greatest resources in fitness because it's uh, not necessarily – well, I guess this is again exactly what we just talked about before we started the, the uh, recording here is uh, it's real. It's It's not you trying to pretend to be anything you're not. And that's very valuable because it gives you gives people an objective uh, assessment as to what is valuable and what's not. Well, let's just be realistic here. I mean, let's just let's. Just, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, right? I'm. I have no special. I haven't unlocked parts of my brain that other people <laughs> haven't unlocked. Like, there's no special talent here. 
I've just made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I've, and I've been doing this, uh, this industry, I'll call it, since the 80s, really. And um, when you make as many mistakes as I have, hopefully you've learned. Um, so there's that part of it. And the other part of it is I've been really, really fortunate to surround myself with some really good people. And I am a firm, firm believer in that old saying about something about the five people that are closest oh, to you. You kind of, I'm a firm believer in that. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I've surrounded myself with some great people that set that help that hold me to high standards and they're just good people. And I don't care how smart you are. If you're a jerk and you treat people bad at the end of the day, I, I just don't want to have anything to do with you, you know? And so I've been very blessed. Uh, I'm blessed to make a lot of mistakes and learn from them and blessed to be around some really good people. That's the greatest perspective we've ever started a podcast with, John. Like, it's funny because I talk about this every day, right? Your greatest obstacle is your greatest opportunity for progress. And, you know, I write that everywhere. Every time I write it, I'm talking about that. And, you know, so many people view negative scenarios in life as, you know, drama. And like even the Uber lady on the way over here, like every single person that was in, in the way was a big, big problem. And like, <laughs> like, gosh, it's amazing how you can look at life so um, differently. Just, you know, like you can look at it one way, she can look at it a different way. And um, your whole life will start to revolve around the way you look at it. And I think that lesson in and of itself is just massive for the listeners, man. Like choose your words, choose your perspective. And then following from that, choose the people you you choose to surround yourself with because they're going to shape your thoughts. They're going to shape your beliefs, your standards, your expectations. I've been talking about this a lot lately because very much like you, like the people I'm around most are my three children and my wife. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's great and valuable. But at the same time, sometimes you end up like my level of education has to be self-guided because, you know, the the level of education is that of a five, seven and 12 year old (laughs) for the most part. So uh, I'm looking for those things outside of myself to maintain stimulation of my mind, which is why I started the podcast, which is why I choose to surround myself with people like yourself and and other great experts in the world. Um, So tell me about your five, man. You don't have to give me specific names, but what standards or or what um, maybe uh, characteristics and, um, value are you looking at to improve your life from those people? Well, you know, the first thing you look at is how does someone treat other people? You know, like if somebody is the nicest person in the world to me, and then you go out to eat with them and you're out to dinner and they treat the waitress like crap, like that says a lot about that person. Um, uh, so I like, how do, how do you treat people? Do you treat them with respect? Do you open doors for people? Do you say thank you? I mean, how many times you open a door for someone and they don't even respond? Just keep walking. You just keep walking. <laughs> Terrible. You know, so yeah. how do you treat other people? And then I like people who stand up for what they believe in. Uh, there's uh, a, a mass tendency now toward a, uh, an idea of moral rel- relativism, uh, which is kind of this notion that whatever is right for you is right for you and everybody, you know, some things are just, no, some things are just wrong. Not everything is black and white, but I like people who stand up for what they believe in. And um, they don't lose sleep over people who don't agree with them or whatever. Like you have beliefs and, and I, I like people like that. Uh, That's why we both get along with Jordan yeah. so well, I think. Yeah, Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about him today and, and uh, definitely one of those guys, right? Like this is what I believe in. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, he's, he's a strong-willed guy. Yeah. 
Uh, I respect that. And, and the, you know, the, probably the number one on my list is people that just have love in their heart. Like, are you trying to make the world a better place? Are you, you know, if you look at, like, I think about my days in school and at some point they taught us Maslow's hierarchy. And I don't know that I remember all of the different hierarchies. I remember somewhere on the bottom, you probably had like food and shelter. Mm -hmm. Then as you moved up, you had social connection, love and belonging and things like that. And if you look at today's society, we're losing that social connection part. We're losing, and people, like, they don't connect. They don't have love in their heart. They're just kind of like robots that... Um, I think it's harder to connect with people now because people don't have the need. So I think humans inherently have a need to connect. But if that need can be fulfilled from your phone, because, like, the need is, is a chemical thing, right? It's yeah. like I'm, a chemical, I'm chemically dependent on dopamine mm-hmm. and so normally i'd come and get serotonin or dopamine from human interaction but if i don't need to actually look at a human anymore i can get it from looking at a phone it's literally like unwiring the the evolutionary need for human interaction right it's, it's a great perspective and, and is that healthy i mean i don't of think so not. of course not because it's <laughs> the most lonely place to be it's a very lonely place to be and um you know so i i to get back to my point, I just think people that have good hearts, love in their hearts. You know, I think about when I have a conversation with one of my friends, like I get dopamine hits from that. I feel awesome. Yeah. I feel awesome. Like, you know, I just had this great smile connection. On your face or... I tell these, like when I do my seminars, I tell these stories about, it's always interesting when I travel and you've probably noticed this. So think about when you're at the airport and you're waiting for somebody to pick you up and you see people being picked up before you are. Um, I was in Denver uh, a while back, and in this uh, lady pulled up, and um, there was another lady that uh, her plane had just arrived. It was an older lady, and they saw each other. They gave each other a big hug, and you could just see the happiness. Mm-hmm. You could see the connection. And I don't know if it was her mother or aunt. I don't know. But you could see the connection. And I'm sitting there watching that, and I'm like, that's so cool. And then... Um, I was at another airport and this guy pulled up and he had a dog in the car with him and another guy came out and they gave each other a big hug. You could see the dog in the backseat jumping up and down, like going nuts. Mm -hmm. And the guy gets in the car and I'm just thinking, I don't know if it's his brother or his friend. I don't know who it was, but just seeing that connection, just like, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That is so awesome. And you have a conversation with one of your friends. Um, People don't really talk a whole lot anymore, but you sit down, you just talk. And it just, like, it makes you feel good as a person. Um, uh, I don't, I'm just a big believer in those kind of relationships and, you know, sharing love in your heart. So I, I, I tend to gravitate toward people like that, too, as well. Yeah. Have you always felt that way? So, And I don't ask that for any uh, other reason than to start exploring whether or not you feel that's a reality in the fitness industry in general. Like I feel like the fitness industry is a very interesting, um, you know, psychological experiment as you observe from the outside, both of us kind of having removed ourselves, right? Like we both have businesses, we both have family still maybe active in the community, but uh, able to step back now rather than being a competitor and looking at it from a competitor's vantage point, looking at it from an outsider's perspective. Um, how do you feel about how social media is affecting the fitness industry? Well, before you even get to that, what did Arnold, what did Arnold teach us in Pumping Iron? He taught us that, you know, you had to be just completely, um, what did he say? He missed his father's funeral or something like that. And people like, right. people took that, like, I got to just focus on me mm-hmm. 
and like family and things like that. It's amazing how much that statement influenced the whole industry. It did. Yep. That was one of the most, you know, I, uh, incredibly influential. Yep. And and I have fallen into this when I was in my 20s. Like everything is going to take a backseat to bodybuilding. And that will bite you in the butt. And unfortunately, I learned that the hard way. I, it could have been worse. Um, but and so, so that, first of all, you always have that risk that isolating yourself from the world and you're going to pay for it later. So now, now to get to your question, how is social media affecting it? Um, I think the answer's probably pretty obvious. We're not really, it's, well, you know what? I probably shouldn't say Ben that it's, it's real obvious because there's two sides to it. Like I think about people that I've met that I would never met from social media. And that's the good part of it. And that's the part that I I tend to focus on because I've met some awesome people, but then you got the other part of it where, you know, people are after, I call it compare and despair. They just kind of, well, I need, I need more likes. I need to have as many friends and followers as this person. And and that is a, you're never going to win at that game. It's never enough. It's like the person who who their only concern is financial wealth. Like it's never going to be enough. You're always going to want the next car or the next. There's no ending to that. Mm-hmm. But in social media, you know, everybody's in this compare and despair. And you know, oh man, they didn't like my picture, or somebody said a bad <laughs> comment about me. I only got twelve likes. Damn. Yeah, who cares? <laughs> right. You know who these people are. You know, right. people call me names on YouTube all the line, all the time, and sometimes I just laugh and I go, "Yeah, I'm not the best looking guy <laughs> in the world." I have to admit, I have to agree with you on that. So, <clears throat> you know, it's like it, I think I think it goes back to perspective, and there's a lot of good things from social media, but man, it can also rear its ugly head. And the social media is not the problem; it's the people that's the problem. It's kind of like science in the fitness injury. Science isn't the problem. It's people. People sometimes misinterpret data. Sure. Sometimes people draw conclusions when they really shouldn't be drawing a conclusion. They should be asking the next set of questions. And that's kind of, you know, I have a lot of friends that are really deep into the science part of it. And they all tell me the same thing. These aren't meant to be answers. They're just meant to lead you to the next set of questions. Mm-hmm. Now, what do we explore based on this? I think there's an interesting uh, conversation to be had there. And uh, just around the idea that, you know, He's saying social media may not be a bad thing, and I agree, but there's a degree of unconscious. You know, most people are very unconscious in their actions. They're influenced by things that they don't even realize they're being influenced by. And, you know, there was a great conversation today that I had with Jordan about the reality that it seems like marriage is less and less likely to succeed. And I, I my well, belief that's statistically proven. You're absolutely right. But my belief is that, or my, at least this conversation was that. It's so easy to have a plan B. Like, and I think there's this is a big lesson even for people pursuing any goal, dream, you know, whether it be fitness, bodybuilding, whatever, or or a successful marriage. If you have a plan B, the likelihood of plan A failing is much higher. So on social media, like if you're having a fight with your girlfriend or your wife or your husband or whoever the hell, and you go look on social media and there's someone there who looks like, oh wow, they're very attractive. They look like a very nice person. They've said hi to me a couple of times. They must be a very kind, loving person. It's so easy to then just go, eh, I'm going to go on to the next one. Whereas like, you know, historically, if, if it wasn't so easy, you may have been more likely to go, man, I, I got the best thing going. Like I got the best person here. I have to stay here. So the grass is always greener, right? The grass is always greener on the other side. And it just seems so easy now to you know, unconsciously assume that it's, oh, I'm going to leave this person, screw them, I'll find somebody better. I think that's a huge consideration that people unconsciously don't pay attention to. 
unless you bring your attention to it, right? It's like the grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. And, and uh, you know, I think every, you know, the same thing with, with if your goal is being a great bodybuilder. If you have a plan B, well, you're going to fail. Like you yeah. and I didn't have a plan B, man. Like, <laughs> no, this there was nothing else in, in my rear view, man. Yeah. This is it. Yeah, we were obsessed. And I think it's so important yeah. that that anyone aspiring for any goal in life realizes that social media is very, very good at pulling your attention. It's like everyone's like a squirrel, like you know, a squirrel looking for nuts, right? You're jumping all over the place. And if you want to be successful in anything, acknowledge the value of social media, of networking connection, but also to acknowledge the detriment of networking connection because mm -hmm. it's so easy to get distracted. And we're all guilty of it, man. We, we live in a distracted yeah, 100%, 100%. world. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's a, it's a different world. And, you know, when I think about, um, you know, you talk about marriage and uh, I got, I, I've come up with a solution. This is pretty revolutionary. And I believe this would help families and help the world in general. And what I would propose is that families have dinner together at night. Every day. Right? Every day. Revolutionary. Yep. And, you know, if you think back to your parents, your grandparents, that was an institution. That was part of marriage because mm -hmm. you sat down as a family. And my wife yep. is really good about that. She's like, we've got to have dinner together. And put the phones down, put mm -hmm. them away, turn them off. And let's just have look each other in the eye. And how many people do that now? Like, I bet you, if I were to ask 10 people, do you have dinner as a family? I bet you nine of them would say no. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't qualify if you're sitting beside each other, but you're not paying attention to each other. Mm -hmm. It doesn't count. You know, are you, to your point, looking at each other in the eye? Are you talking? Are you connecting? And um, so that's like, to me, like the family is the foundation, man. That's where it all starts. And when that goes to shambles, then a lot of things will fall and, and it can go to shambles as well. Totally, man. Hey, everybody. I interrupt this podcast to bring you a special message from the MI40 Nation, Muscle Intelligence Community, and myself. I am taking on the world. I'm traveling the world, bringing you camps all around the world. So Jordan Shallow and I did a month of camps in Australia, and now we're coming to a city near you. So here's what we've got. We've got Tampa coming up in March. We've got Toronto in April. I'm heading over to Dubai in April. We've got a bunch of Canadian dates scheduled out in July. We are also doing um, Iceland and a couple of European dates in the summertime, which are going to be coming at you guys soon because they're not quite confirmed yet as far as the exact dates, but they are coming. So if you're somewhere in the UK, if you're somewhere in Germany, if you're somewhere in Ireland, Iceland, or Canada, all throughout Canada, we will be coming to a city near you to bring you the best muscle building information that exists anywhere on the planet. And here's why you care. If you're someone who wants to build a great body or get really strong, we're going to bring you the best integrated information that exists. Here's why. If you're trying to build muscle, it requires isolation or isolating muscles. That's how muscles grow. Oftentimes, that can cause dysfunction, right? Isolation ultimately leads to dysfunction. So what Dr. Jordan Shallow and I have done is combined this beautiful synergy in teaching you how to isolate and integrate function and allow you to build as much muscle as you possibly can without introducing bottlenecks and injuries and pain and showing you how to ultimately maintain 
uh, optimal function, range of motion, while you build massive amounts of strength and massive amounts of muscle. And all of that is coming at you in a three-day seminar in a city near you. So if you want to check that out, head over to musclecamps.com. Couldn't be easy to remember, musclecamps.com. Sign up right now. Space is super, super limited because we want you guys to have an amazing experience. We keep the numbers very, very low. Uh, it's a very intimate experience. You get to work with us directly. We're going to have two workouts a day. We're going to kick your butt as well as teaching you more information about muscle building and getting strong than you could find anywhere else on the internet or anywhere for that matter. And I look forward to seeing every one of you there. Enjoy the rest of the episode with John Meadows. I want to switch gears a little bit toward bodybuilding because everyone knows you as being a great bodybuilder who always brought the grain train, right, to use your term. <laughs> and that's, that's a fascinating topic, man. I think, um, and again, I don't necessarily want to talk about your career, your training yet. You don't um, want to discuss all 60-some shows I do? I mean, no, I do. I do. I want to <laughs> we'll go, go through, through, one by go one. through every, every mistake <laughs> that you've made in every one of the shows. Everybody get some popcorn. Um, what I want to talk about is why do you, first of all, do you feel that the level of athlete is diminishing? Let's that. Or improving. Okay, so I look at it at different levels. I look at the pro level and I look at the amateur level. Mm -hmm. And um, at the pro level, you still see big hard physiques you always will because it's genetic cream of the crop you don't see kind of the shape and symmetry that you used to see because there's just an all-out gain muscle i want to be the guy that gains 30 pounds of muscle in a year and when that happens people celebrate and they cheer this guy's a freak he gained 30 pounds of muscle in a year and then their waistline starts to blow their organs get bigger some of these guys you probably have heard the same guys that i've heard having kidney transplants and things like that so physiques are bigger and they're hard, but are they better? Uh, I mean, like if you put a picture up of Phil Heath next to Lee Haney, most people would say Phil Heath has more money or more muscle and he's bigger. Lee Haney's probably one of my favorites of all time, though. Like he just, the way he flowed, he looked great. Now then you go down, you look at the amateur level. It, actually, we even go to the local level. At the local level, it used to be when you won a state title, you got mad respect. You're a great like bodybuilder. When, absolutely. When you won, it was it was a bigger victory to win the Mr. Ohio here in this state than to get top five at nationals. Um, I remember the first year I did the USA, I got fourth place, and I came home and I was ecstatic because my goal was to make the cut, which is the top fifteen. I got fourth. I came back and I said, "Yeah, I got fourth. Or actually, I said, "Yeah, I got fourth. I was all excited, and people are, "Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened, man? Like, like, no, that was good, mm -hmm. but." You know, then you tell someone, well, I'm, I'm Mr. Ohio. And they're like, oh, wow. They look at you. And I remember going to the Mr. Ohio um, when I was a teenager. And the guys, they really were good. And the, and the classes really were deep. And if you go to the state shows now, even the local shows, there's the bodybuilding is non-existent. There's one super heavy. There's two right. heavies. There's two light heavies. Right. And there's they're relatively poor and they're completely out of condition most <laughs> right. of the time and then you go yeah. to the national level and so many pro cards have been given out it's it used down. to be you really knew um like when you did the north american i think you got third one year or second second, second or third. Yeah. when you got second i bet you anything you knew who the top 10 was roughly when you went into that show i bet you had a good idea of who you were going to be going up i had against. a pretty good idea yeah and the years that in 99, 2000, 2001, I knew who I was going to be going up against. Mm -hmm. I knew who they were. And it was tough. Like, man, how can I? I remember showing up in Dallas in 2002 in my best condition ever in my life. I got 10th. 
And, you know, um, there was, I mean, if you look at the people who became pros, actually, I beat Sean Roden at that show. <laughs> um, I think Sean got 12th or 14th in the class. That I mean, it was a tough show. Right. But if you look at the Nationals in USA, now USA, Ben, had 10 guys in the last year. And the whole, not the whole body. In the, U, in the heavyweight class. Oh, okay. In the heavyweight class at the USA last year, there were, there were, there ten, were 10 competitors. And look, I don't want to knock those guys, but let's be honest here. They weren't in real good shape. Mm-hmm. Um, why? So I, I have levels of theory, right? And, and, <laughs> and I think you're the, one of the best people to talk about on this. Cause like I've been a fan of bodybuilding since I was 15 years old. I went to the 98 Olympia. I was 17. And since that day I've watched everything in bodybuilding i've consumed everything so i've got a pretty good opinion or at least a pretty good uh objective outlook on like what's happening especially because a lot of we have great friends who were bodybuilders back then you know i've known bodybuilders from the 80s 90s and right through and why so i'd love to hear your opinion well you know you're the first thing that's always going to come to your mind is just the level of work ethic um, you, you could first, you could, the first thing you could do is you could say that the ranks are depleted now because there's so many pro cards given out. And I think that's a legitimate argument. They do give a lot of pro cards out. I mean, I actually got my pro card at team universe. Yeah. Um, so you can say the talent is depleted, but what I would also say is those people go into the pro level and they get smashed. Like most of those 90, and they stop five. competing. Cause they're like, I can't do this. Yeah. It's like yeah. a whole nother level. Uh, um, the other thing I would say is if you look at work ethic, People are paralyzed by overtraining fears. They It's hard to get a good workout when you're focused on your phone. There's so many things we talk about relative yeah. to training intensity. I remember yeah. four years ago when we trained together, I remember you doing a banded deadlift, like not reverse banded, banded to make it harder. Plus you had like 500 pounds on it and you went to failure. There wasn't, well, if I do this set, am I going to overtrain? It was... <laughs> I'm going to go balls out. And I think you might even had like your rib cage felt funny because you're straining so hard. And like, if you remember the way Dave and I used to train, for example, on the weekends, it was a, let's see how much punishment we can take. And 99% of the people now watching that would, would have said, you guys are overtraining. You're doing too much, but you know what? Gained a lot of muscle you training. You grew like, like a weed, yeah. And you know what? I had a dense look to my muscles that you can't really question. Mm-hmm. You can question my shape, but you can't really question the density. Mm-hmm. And that look comes from really pushing yourself in part. Actually developing tissue, like actually developing protein. That's right. Right, Rather than just hyperemia from the pump and, right. and from it, insulin the, and growth the hormones. Bubbles, the bubble muscle. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so, yeah, there's there's so many things, right? So I, I think drugs play a big part. Um you know, the, the lack of accessibility of, of drugs. And not that I like to go down that path a lot, but, you know, the bodybuilders in the 90s, I don't believe are better than the bodybuilders of today, even though people say they were, but their accessibility to drugs over extended periods of time was much different. So now guys want to get in shape. And, and back then, I mean, I won't say it was a drug culture, but there was there was definitely a consideration of the accessibility of things. Yeah, I think also that now people think the drugs are the thing to get them in shape. Well, it's not. That's not what's going to get you in shape, oh, right? That's the polish and the Corvette. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The drugs are, are the the augment, right? Um, whereas they assume, hey, I'm going to take a little bit of testosterone. I'm going to get big. I'm going to get huge. I'm going to get ripped. No, you need to train. So I always advocate, like, hey, it needs to be training centric. Like, we need to develop a training centric culture, training centric community, 
Um, whereas back then, I think it was actually more training centric. Whereas the guys always train, so. they train twice a day, every day. What else were they doing? Well, they already eat, sleep, and train. They define themselves as a bodybuilder. Whereas now, people are defining themselves by hey, how many how many followers do you have on Instagram. So it's not just about being a great athlete. It's about what can I do that's sensational on a week to week basis or day to day basis that will acquire more followers. So it's not a performance based thing. Mm-hmm. It's not even a training based thing. It's how can I look good or be sensational in some way. And I think those two things, as much as it's small, as you accumulate that over time, takes away from someone's focus. Like, I'll tell you what, if I go in the gym and I have my phone in my hand, my workout sucks. Like, it's shit. I don't care what you say or what you think. Like, your workout's shit. When you and I train hard, I would have kicked myself in the balls if I had my own my phone there. Like, like <laughs> come on, man. Like that one, that's disrespectful. Two, you're not focused. Three, physiologically, that thing's down regulating your nervous system. Like, yeah. and we have to, we have proof yeah. on that, right? So, so many levels as to why it's taking away. I'm actually strongly considering banning them at my gym. Like, leave it in the car. Don't bring it in yeah. here. We'll have somebody here taking pictures for you for social media, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I tell you, I I actually transferred colleges to go to a world gym on East Livingston here in town. <laughs> it's about 15 minutes from here. Yeah. And I was uh, going to a college in Southern Ohio and I wanted to be a bodybuilder so bad. Now I, I was already competing at that time. And I knew that there was a world gym on East Livingston because I had my football coach take me to it. And I trained there twice. And I was like, this is where I need to be. Like, this is where I need to be. I actually transferred colleges. I went three years at this other school Transferred to Capital University, which is right, right down the street from that gym, so I could train at that gym. That's how much it meant to me. No phones, nothing. It was, I want to get in here and mix it up because this is where the guys who were winning the Mr. Ohio trained. This is where the best powerlifters, well, not the best powerlifters. Louie had the best powerlifters, but really strong powerlifters were training there. The best bodybuilders were training there. And it was pure heaven. It was, you know, I remember... Um, I trained usually before I went to class. So the gym opened at six o'clock and I'd pull up at six o'clock. And I remember sometime around 640, my training partner and I would have six plates on the, in the squat rack and we'd be doing reps with it. Yeah. And we loved it. We loved it. And it was just, um, you kind of measured yourself by how far you could push. I mean, that's what it was. And it's funny. I've got a similar story, man. I went to university and everyone's like, oh, are you going to stay in residence? I was like, No. I, I literally looked, I pulled up the phone book, phone book at the time before Google, and I looked up all the gyms and I visited every gym in the city. I found the best one and I found the closest apartment I could find in the gym. <laughs> no, no exaggeration. So there's a great Gold's gym. And I remember it had, had the, they called it the dungeon. So I went downstairs at a leg room and I literally, my house was like right next door. And that was intentional. It was first year university. Everyone's like, hey, stand at res. We're going to party. I'm like, dude, I'm standing right beside the gym. I like that was my life. Uh, so we live, we live parallel existences, man. That's funny. Well, I had an apartment, a cheap little apartment too, right beside the gym where I could walk to it. So mm-hmm. it was like, it was awesome, man. But um, I drove by that gym like two, three months ago. And it's actually a bingo place now. Oh, and I was man. just like, man. Like they turned my gym into a uh, pet um a veterinary clinic. Yeah, okay. And I was like, ah, oh, man, I could, like, I started, this is when I was 15 years old. It's not the gym I trained at in college, but when I was 15, I trained at this place called Max Gym, M A C K S, Mac. 
Um, and uh, it was, I think I was a welder. He was in his late 70s and he built everything. And like Arnold had been in the gym and pictures in the wall. It was amazing. And if I could have bought it, like I was baby at the time, right? You know, when I, when he passed away, I think I was 19 or something. Uh, but man, what a gym that was. Like yeah. uh, it would have yeah. been like the hardcore dungeon, the, the heaven, right? But that's where I grew up and I learned how to train in places like that. And the standard when I went in there was like everyone squatted, everyone deadlifted, everyone trained legs. Like if you if you had a phone in there, you would have been had your ass kicked. Yeah. Like it, again, phones didn't exist, but you'd had your ass kicked. Like it wouldn't have been an option. Yeah. And that's what I learned. And I think that culture is missing. I think it, the you know the, we talk about this sometimes as well. The the hierarchy of life no longer exists. Everyone's on an even playing field, and I think that's a problem, including in sports. You know, I think that the necessity of hierarchy in society is important. So when you walked in the gym, there was probably a certain number of guys you looked up to, you never spoke back to. Like if you did, they'd slap you in the mouth and you'd say, sorry, sir, like, you know, I'll only pick up your weights for a week. And, and that was a reality in the, the gyms that I trained at. And I went in there and I kept my mouth shut and I worked hard and I tried to earn their respect. Um, and I feel like that's, again, another part of it, that there's nobody out there who... Uh, is respectful of the people around them trying to as, as, uh, aspire to being at that level. Yeah. Well, when I went to, in the mid-90s, I also trained at Westside Barbell. Yeah. And Louie? When I went over there, I didn't say anything. And I think that's, to this day, I always say that's why Louie liked me because I didn't say anything. I'd walk yes, in sir. and I'd say, Louie, what do you want me to do? Yep. And Louie would say, John, I want you to work up to 500. Uh, I want you to squat on this hassock below parallel. I want you to do eight sets of two. And then I want you to go home. And I'd say, yes, sir. And I would do it. Simple <laughs> as that. Yeah, exactly. Simple as that. And man, you know the reality, and I talk about this all the time, I, like you, man, I get on a, on a regular basis, you know, on a weekly basis, I maybe get five to six bodybuilders who come to me and say, man, I'd love for you to train me. And I give them some obscure instruction that has nothing to do with training. I'm like, yeah, all right, man, go do this for a week or go do this for a month. And how many do you think actually do it? Like 1%, maybe 10%. And if they did, like, the, the, the whole point of it is, like, I want to see if you can do the simple stuff. If you can't do right. the simple stuff, you can't do the complex stuff, so don't waste right. my time. Right. Right? And I'll be like, hey, man, all right, no problem. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and do three minutes of gratitude every morning when you wake up. Yep. And then report to me on that. And, like, they're like, what do you mean, man? I want to build muscle. I'm like, yeah, go do three minutes of gratitude. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Like, you're out of your mind. I'm like, okay, no problem. See you later, man. Yeah. If you can't listen to the simple stuff, you can't perform on the great stuff. So that's why Louis loved him, man. He's like, hey, man, go do eight sets of two. And everyone else would go, well, what about the leg extensions and the hack squats and the bands and the chains and the, can I do some knee wraps? No, just fucking do the simple yeah. stuff first. Because if you can't do that, you can't do anything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was awesome, man. I loved it. And I am, um, you know, there's, what's that old saying that to be a great, teacher, you got to be a great student. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody too, uh, in part due to social media, there's a rat race to be looked at as being the best, the smartest, the special knowledge guy, the most creative, yeah, yeah. the most creative. <laughs> and I just tell people straight up, like, I'm not the smartest guy. I don't have any special insight. I've just done this a long time and I'm happy to share what's worked for me and other people. If you want to try it, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. But one of the, you know what, Ben, one of the most one of the best things that happened to me was when I figured out that I didn't need to be the smartest guy on the block. Like when I figured that out and I just kind of relaxed, like the level of mental happiness, just mental stress went down. The level of happiness I had took a, took a leap up. Yeah. And, um, and I was like, and I try to tell 
some of these younger guys at. I'm like, look, you don't have to be, you don't have to put on this facade that you're the sharpest, you have the best tools. Like, you don't need to do that. And um, that was, a, but I, I just think, I think back about that. And uh, that was a pretty powerful thing to me to just realize, John, you don't have to be the super guru of gurus. Like, you don't have to be, it doesn't matter. Just be you, man. Just be you and live life. And help people when they need help if you you know if they're willing to put in the time and go from there. It sounds cliche, but I think the the takeaway is maybe the most important thing is consistency. You know, and like so, you know, our uh, guy who you know really well, Joe Bennett, worked yep. for me for a long time. Joe's not a gifted athlete. Joe's not even a smart guy. Like he's a very smart guy, but don't get me wrong. But like the thing that I loved and respected most about him, he made so much progress in the three years we trained together because yeah. he showed up. And kept his mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, he didn't train. Like he trained hard, of course, but he showed up. Yeah. You know how many other people just don't show up, like, or they have some excuse as to why they can't, or this is hurting, they can't do that. I'm like, he just showed up and made so much progress. And I have another guy working at my gym right now. Same idea, man. Like he's been with me for a year, and the guy's progress is absolutely insane because he just shows up every day and does the work. And it's it's funny, I'm sitting here with a smile on my face to think about like, we're all looking for the new creative way, the next scientific modality to advance this. And I love the aspiration for knowledge, but results lay in just showing up. Every day. And doing week it. Week after week, year after year. And getting 1% better, man. 1% yeah. better. And that, that was, I'm sure, like I'd love to hear about your mentality and your mindset as you transcended you know, this aspiration to, to ascend the mountain of bodybuilding. Right. And like, what was your day to day? If you can remember, what was your day to day focus? Was it like, Hey, I want to be the hardest working guy. I want to be a pro bodybuilder. Cause for me, it was just like, I'll be better today than I was yesterday. I loved the internal struggle for me. It was never about the vanity, which is sounds funny to hear from a guy no, who became a professional bodybuilder. It, no. it was, it was never about the vanity. I never wanted to get people outside of me saying how great I looked. It was never yeah. about that. It was about, I had this internal struggle with myself to be a better version of myself because I thought I was lazy. And like, all right, attached, I associated with being lazy, but it was always just like, hey, I want a better today than it was yesterday. Yeah, that's a personal miss mission. Um, when I was 13 years old, I, I, I told this story uh, a lot. Uh, when I watched the 1985 Mr. Olympia, the Lee Haney one, it was the second Mr. Olympia title. I watched it on ESPN. How old were you? I was 13. 13. I watched it on ESPN, and when I saw that, um, I went to the, uh, it was called the Sundry Store, like a, kind of like a CVS here, mm -hmm. and I went there with my grandmother, and I, she went shopping, and I said, I'm going to be over to magazines, so I pulled out a muscle and fitness, and I just sat there on the floor, and I started flipping through it, and I saw pictures of uh, the young lion, Rich Gaspar, he, I think he was 20, 21 years old, I saw pictures of Albert Beckles, I saw pictures of Tom Platts. And I said, I want to be those guys. I want to be a pro bodybuilder. At 13 years old, I said, I want to wow. be a pro bodybuilder. And I competed later that year. Really? Um, I got fourth out of four. <laughs> One judge had me in third. Of course, when you cross highs and lows, I still got last place. But um, I wanted to be a pro bodybuilder. I, it didn't, for me personally, it didn't have anything to do with trying to impress girls or getting picked on. I just love the look. I just said, I want to look like You were like a superhero that. guy when you were a kid. You love I was. Yeah. And I still got, actually, um, Dr. Sharana was just in there looking at my comics with me. He's, <laughs> we love comics. I love T-Man as we, as we talked about in comics, but I, I just love that look. And I said, I want to look like that. And as the years went by, of course I was in sports and continued to train, continue to compete. And I believed in my heart that I was like, I believe that I was meant to be a pro bodybuilder. Now, 
I don't know why I thought that, but that's what I thought. That's my destiny in life. And as you know, from my history, I got knocked down over and over. Um, and eventually I got really sick in 2005. I had a rare disease in the, uh, in my large intestine. I had my whole colon removed and that was like, okay, this, this dream is probably over, but you know what? Let's just get healthy again. Let's just, let's just be happy. And I remember going to the gym and you just said you didn't really care what people thought. And I, and I can relate to that because I went back to the gym and I was 165 pounds after all my surgeries. And when I walked in, one of the trainers, she said, oh, I'm, I'm surprised to see you in here. And I was like, really? Why is that? She's like, well, you know, you've just lost so much weight. I was like, this is the gym. I'm home. Like, I am super happy to be in the gym. You know, I might have been curling a seven-pound dumbbell, but <laughs> I was happy to be in the gym because mm-hmm. I love the gym. I didn't care what people thought. And um, through the years, um, that's that's when that I'm destined to be a pro body pro bodybuilder got tested. You know, second place, second place, second place, three years in a row. That's when I got tested. Like, um, is this really meant to happen? And I just love to train, man. I just love to train. So I just kept training. And, and I had the, the, a crazy year in 2011 going into 2012 where I had another like growth spurt. And that was the next level of muscle that I needed to get a pro card. And I proceeded to get second and second. But at that point, I was like, nothing's going to stop me. And you know what I think really helped me a lot, Ben, was I got my family behind me. And when I had my family behind me, it made a big difference. It wasn't just me. It was like more of like a team effort. And, um, you know, prior to that, I remember, you know, you, you get into some unpleasant situations where you're being selfish. And, and I remember going to Mary and just saying, look, I'm about to start suffering. I'm, I'm probably going to be tired. Can you just let me take naps every now and then? And she was like, sure. All you had to do was say something. Dude, I did the exact same thing with my wife. Imagine that, right? <laughs> a conversation. Yep. So when we had that conversation, things changed. And when I would start suffering before a show, like you remember when I did the Arnold Classic, for example, mm-hmm. that took some suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she was behind me, and we were communicating. And, you know, I have kind of my own rules with this stuff, that when the show's over, you spoil them like crazy yeah. because they just – gave, they put you in first and so now you put them in first. And then I had my, you know, my kids are, 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 you know, starting to get a little bit older. So now you have other things that you're fighting for other things that's kind of stir the passion in your heart. And I want to make, you know, I want to make my kids proud. I want to make my wife proud. I want to make my friends proud. You know, I always had this weird thing. Tell me, so tell me if you ever experienced this. So people ask me what drove you to get in that good a contest condition. And the first thing that comes to my mind was fear of embarrassing myself was number one. Like, I don't want to get up there and embarrass myself. So I'm going to work so hard that never happens. And number two was I didn't want to let the people who believed in me down. I've been very fortunate to have people support me. Um, uh, a lot of people support me and I didn't want to let them down, man. Like I didn't want to show up. Like if I go to see someone compete that I'm friends with and, and they don't really diet hard. They show up and they kind of halfway go through the motions. And I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be a little ticked. Like I just drove here, spent my time and you didn't even care. 
Like that's how I think. That's probably unhealthy. But I didn't want people to spend their money to come and see me to take time out of their days and then me not give them my best effort because that's not right. So I always had these two things. Like, I know it sounds crazy, but like, John, don't embarrass yourself. If you don't get in better shape, you're going to embarrass yourself. And also don't let the people who believe in you down. And I know that's probably a weird way to look at motivation, but, um, man, it comes from wherever it comes from. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. It, <laughs> for me, it was very different for me. There was, there was always the aspect of, um, you tell me I can't like one person, one person stands up my mind. One of my bosses from a long time ago said, you'll never have striated glutes. And I was like, okay. And I, every show I did, I was like, me damn right. I'm going to have striated glutes. And it was always in the back of my mind. Yeah. Like that, that tone of like, you'll never have it. You'll never have it. You'll never have it. And I was like two middle fingers to the world, man. Yeah. I'm going to do it. There was that. And there was also for me just wanting to fulfill my, my best. Yeah. And I knew, I always said my best was good enough to win any show I entered. Could I, could I get there? And I never felt that I ever really got to my best. So there was this constant aspiration to go, what does your best look like? Can you keep going after it? Can you keep going after it? What is your best? Like, did you give your all? No, I missed on that one. Well, now we get to do another show, right? Yeah. I got to go and do it again. Like, ah, you know, every show you do, there's always something you're like, man, I didn't do that. Like, if I would have done that, maybe that would have been the thing that put me over the top. And I'll tell you, the only show that I ever really thought I gave my all was the 2012 Arnold where I got I fourth. Knew, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I gave my all, man. That was, that was like, that's the hardest I ever worked. I, I gave everything to that show. It was very selfish. I was very closed off to the world. And, um, you know, the irony of that, I think that was probably the last show that I ever, ever gave my all because my son was born and I lost that uh, ability to be selfish. Yeah. Like I needed to then become a different person. But yeah. I gave my all on that show. I really did. And uh, I was, that was by far where I was most happy with my end result. Even though I had placed better after that, I still wasn't as, as complacent, but or as happy. Uh, but yeah, for me, it was always like, what would it look like yeah. if, if everything came together and you actually worked your best? And, and that pursuit always, always, always drove me. Yeah. Like having the vision in your mind of, you know, I could have, I could be known for being one of the best bodybuilders in the world. I could be known for having the best legs of all time. I could be known for being in the best condition. Like, and that, I love that because it was so uh, counterintuitive to the person that I grew up thinking I was to now I can be this person who's like the best conditioned guy on stage. Yeah. That was always the goal. How much can I suffer more than you? Like I'm yeah. willing to sit here and endure this as you're not. And I know it. And you, you get it. We had, we had a similar, <laughs> we had a similar outlook toward this stuff, man. Yeah. I think that's what made us uh, successful at this. Just the fact that we, you know, we were willing to suffer a little bit. Well, and imagine now, I mean, people don't suffer nearly as much now as they used to. Like, I, yeah, yeah, I think people are, are are afraid. I wonder how you, I'd like to hear how you are with your clients, man. Like, are you honest with your clients? Like, people are afraid to be honest with people for fear of judgment. Yeah. Like, if I, I I try to be as honest as I can, people don't always want to hear it, man. But like, like, dude, you're fat. Like, you can't do it. You don't do it. You're gonna like, you know, I might use yeah. that. Now you can embarrass yourself. But like, really, um, I think it's disrespectful to your competitors. Yeah. Like, you're gonna show up. Like if I'm going to Mr. Olympia and I'm competing against Phil Heath and Kai Green and all these guys, and I'm like, I'm going to show up and be be fat and think I can stand on the same stage as these guys? Like, absolutely not. Yeah. Like, you know, you see that one guy who shows up to a logo show and he hasn't dieted. He goes on stage, he's got a beer belly, he's a pasty white. You're like, 
I think that is disrespectful to everybody else because you haven't respected the amount of work that needs to go into that show. Um, you know, those guys put in so much work and you're just going to go up there and throw a pair of posing suit on, posing trunks on it and think you're going to, like, I think that's disrespectful. I would never do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I tell you, like, when I think about my coaches that I've had through the years, the uh, coach that I respect the absolute most was a guy named Mike Matson. Mike was my first ever coach. Uh, when I was going to that school, Wilmington College, um, I was, do you remember John Perillo, right? Yeah. So I used to train, Wilmington was close to Perillo performance. So I mm-hmm. used to go to Perillo's and train on the weekend. Um, well, actually, before I even got to that, I was preparing for the teenage Mr. Cincinnati. And the Mr. Cincinnati used to be huge. It was every big, it, actually, it's the oldest, one of the oldest, if not the oldest contest in bodybuilding history. Hmm. That show was huge around here. And I didn't have much money. I was in college. But I purchased some Perillo products because John had this thing where you could call his 800 number and ask any questions you want if you're a customer. <laughs> so I'd buy whatever. Let's see where that's going. And I'm calling 800 number. Hey, I got this contest coming up. So I'm basically getting pre-contest coaching from this guy. So this guy's name was Mike. So then finally I'm like, um, you know, I called, called, and called. That's and I could tell Mike was like, I really hope you're taking this stuff I'm telling you serious because I'm giving you a lot of information for free. And so I said, well, Mike, I'm going to be doing the Teenage Mr. Cincinnati. And Mike says, well, that's interesting because I'm judging it. And I'll meet you there. I'll, I'll see if you've been doing the things that I told you to do. And we, we didn't have a relationship at that point other than me calling him and bugging him, like bugging him. <laughs> Getting amazing. all my free advice. That's amazing. So I showed up to Teenage Mr. Cincinnati. I went. I talked to Mike afterwards. And Mike says, you know, good job. I think you have some potential. And anyways, long story short, Ben, so I started training at Perillo Performance. No one ever pushed me like that. Like, I had worked pretty hard through high school and into college, but Mike pushed me to another level, and he held me to a standard. He had no problem looking at me and and giving me very constructive criticism. No problem at all. And I liked it. I was like, man, he's right. Mm-hmm. And he pushed me and he pushed me and he made me train so hard. Um, and I don't honestly, man, I don't think I've ever pushed anybody as hard as Mike pushed me. But to answer your question, when I look back and I think, who do I really respect? Mike would be number one on my list. The people who pushed me the hardest yep. and who, who are the most honest most with honest, me. Most honest, for sure. He was honest with me. Yep. And he would tell me what I didn't want to hear sometimes. I did a show in 1996 called the uh, Columbus Grand Prix or 19, actually it was 1994. I showed up at the show. I win, I win my class and I lose to the middleweight by two points for the overall. And I, I had been on a winning streak. I had won maybe four or five shows in a row uh, over the last two years. And so I was getting a little, honestly, I was getting a little full of myself. No one around here can beat me. Right. So I go to the parking lot. I got my girlfriend with me. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Didn't win the overall, but I still won my class. So Mike walks out. And he looks at me, he doesn't say a word. He goes, you just let yourself down. And I was like, whoa. He's like, you know, I don't know what you were doing in your diet, but I know you weren't following what I told you. And he was right. I've been cheating on my diet. And I was so embarrassed. But you know what I said? Yes, sir, you're right. It don't ever happen again. And I never consciously cheated on my diet again. Never. Like I've had cheat meals that were planned and things like that. But I never said, oh, to heck with it. I'm so good. I'm just going to have a cheat meal. 
it never happened again. And when people ask me how you get in good contest shape, because I had number one, I just wanted, I was motivated by some of the things I told you earlier, but there was something that clicked in my brain when Mike said that to me that impacted me for the rest of my competitive career. I, I had a, such a sick feeling in my gut. Mike says, you know, like I said, you let yourself down and he was 100% right. And then I think like a guys like Dave Tate, you know, Dave was always very, very honest with me. He would tell me things I might not have wanted to hear, but it was what I needed to hear. And guess who I respect Dave Tate. So I try to be a coach like that to your question. I sometimes think I should probably be harder on people. Um, some people I, aren't ready to hear. I, I try to do a, a good job of that, but I think I have some room to grow in that area. And it's funny because my mother was that person for me, not as a bodybuilding and on bodybuilding, but in life. And at the time, I remember resenting her. I was like, "Man, she's so mean. She's not nice." And it's the person I respect most in my in my you know my adult life, or one of the people I respect most. Is just she made me the person I am. Like it was the idea of like, you need help, you need a helping hand. Look on the end of your own arm, right? That's all you got, buddy. I was like, man, like at the time, you're like, why Why are you so resistant to helping? But looking back, it's like, those are the people that tough, sometimes you need tough love, man. And I think our world is uh, void of tough love. You know, I have some young bodybuilders that I help and um, I intentionally tell them what they need to hear or what they don't want to hear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, and th sometimes it gets you some undesirable uh, looks. But I'm like, listen, man. Mike, and, and I say this to every client as who wants to come on with me, and I say, if my expectation for you or my standard for you is higher than your expectation or your standard for yourself, this relationship's not going to work. It's going to be a problem. Yeah, that's yeah. a big problem. Yep. And, like, I want you to do well. I'm going to get behind you completely, 100%. But if you can't get behind yourself and put the work in, then what the hell are we doing? That yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right? And, and most people are a lot of people yeah it's right for me or some people are just like no you know like because they know my standard is going to be world class and i think if you want to be successful in anything you need at least one person in your life who's willing to be completely transparently honest with you and success has to be grounded in transparency right like yeah. in, in an honest objective view um and i think that's why you managed to be so good man nobody touched your condition and that's what i'm trying to dig into here is like what was that unconscious thing that allowed you to Oh, man, I got to suffer. Was, was, you, know, well, you know, the other thing, man, was I, I, you know, look, I'm not blind. I know what my faults are. I know I have a wide pelvic girdle. I know I have narrow clavicles. I know I'm never going to attain the type of prettiness, we'll call it, that other guys have. So the only prayer I have is Get to just peeled. be sta a That's statue. True. And when I did the Arnold Classic, um, there were a lot of guys in that show who had won. It's fucking shows. awesome, by the way. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't swear. Um, but like, it's pretty awesome that you did that. But man, like I, I, was, oh, I was, I was behind you, man. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, I was, it was fantastic. I remember you and Chad Nichols talking about it on your uh, podcast you used to do with him. But um, I said to myself when prep started, I said, these guys are all, they've all won pro shows. You know, David, Jose, all these guys, they're excellent. They're very, very good. The only way, you have a prayer of getting looked at is if you just look just retarded shredded, mm -hmm. like you've got to walk out there and people's jaws have to drop. I can't have that much muscle cause I'm too tall. It's going to be cause it, it, I think you probably know I had some real challenges making that weight class. Yeah. So I, um, that was the leanest I'd ever been in my life. Um, Sean Roden saw me and he said, I, I didn't know you could even be alive and be that lean. 
Ty Green saw me and he said, this is the best condition I've seen. He saw me out in Vegas and said that. And those were two very big compliments that yeah, I got. From those guys. From those guys. Yeah. So I was, I felt pretty good about my condition. Neil Hill um, was like, man, you're, you know, you're going to be right there. And, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't look at me. Um, but I did what I thought I needed to do. I brought a level condition that was, I think, really, really impressive. And I suffered. I suffered. That's, you know, that was 14 to 1600 calories a day the last two weeks. That was pure brutality. That was not even be able to function outside of the gym. That was asking my wife, my wife to help me with everything. I mean, it was tough, but I knew that's what I needed to do to get in that level condition. So I, you know, for me, Ben, I always knew that that was my, that would have to be a calling card for me. Cause if I sh showed up off and not a condition, bye-bye, I'm, I'm going to get crushed. That's awesome. Um, so much value in that, man. It is know thyself, um, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, one thing that, you know, is interesting that I never experienced as, as a, or at least I tried to frame my, my mind around as a competitor was just being your best. And I think you, you mentioned that in there. It was like, you knew you needed to be your best. I and mean, as much as you're going to, you're going to try to compete against David Henry and, and Jose and, and Guy and these guys, like the victory in there is being the best John ever. And that's why you, you were able to develop so much confidence in your abilities and in yourself is, you know, you're your best going on stage, man. That There's so much power in that. And I think that's why I was happy in 2012 was, that was my best ever. And I can't, I can't control who shows up or how they show up. I think it's important for us to, as competitors to acknowledge that to the audiences. Like if you're placing your self-worth on your ability to win a show or on the judge's perception of you that day, it's a huge problem. Good luck with that. Huge problem. <laughs> Good right? luck with but that. The only thing you can control is I want to be the best John today. You know, and that's a very powerful place to come from. Um, what can I do to be better? Yeah. 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 Very cool, man. Um, how many clients do you have right now? Well, I, you know, I have a lot of business ventures going, so I try to keep it under 40, you know, 30 or 40. Um, and there was a time when I had so many people, I basically didn't have a life, you know, and of course my kids started getting a little older and I thought, yeah, that's probably not the way to go. I'm going to blink and my kids are going to be 18 leaving the house and I'm going to go, what happened? So you select or how, how do you, what's your selection process? Well, you have some coaches working under you now, right? I do. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm very, very picky about who I take on. Um, you know, I have a questionnaire that I take a look at when people send it in and I have a, a waiting list. The reason why I have a waiting list is because I don't let someone come in unless it's under special circumstances, unless someone else has, has finished working with mm -hmm. me. So, you know, I have a guy, for instance, um, that just worked with me for four years and he left. So there was some people who all wanted to start. And I picked one of those people and said, okay, we'll start working together. But basically it's just, you know, you got to wait for somebody to kind of leave the fold before you, somebody else, before you bring somebody else in. And, you know, that way you can give them the proper time, the proper energy that they deserve because a good coach is going to, you know, as a contest approaches and things like that, they're obviously going to be talking to you a lot more, spending a lot more time with you. And it's very time intensive. Um, so to me, I, you know, everything I do, I try to have it be first class, first class, everything I do. So my coaching, you know, if you talk to people who are working with me, they'll tell you, man, he, he cares about me. He gives me everything. 
um, that he has. That's what I want. I, I need that with 30 or 40 people as opposed to, hey, look at me. I've got 200 clients. You know, I don't care about how many clients I have. What I do care about is the people that I have know that I'm giving it my best effort as a coach. And, oh, by the way, I expect their best effort as well. So, you know, it's just one of those things where you just kind of control the number of people you have. And, sure. Uh, I bet if you looked at my client list, I bet you probably 50 to 70% of them has probably been with me at least three years, probably closer to four or five. They're like wow. long time clients. Like when somebody says, Hey John, I just want to try something new. I'm like, man, I don't blame you. You've been working with me for five years. I would have, if it were me, I probably would have left three years ago and tried mm-hmm. something new. But, um, yeah, you try to develop good relationships with people and take care of them. Do you find that happens a lot in the industry right now? What's your opinion on the, the apparent reality that it seems like people are jumping from coach to coach a lot? Why, why do you think they do that? Because every coach promises the, the magical solution. Every coach has the magical final prep week. They have the magical diuretic solution the night before. They have the magical insulin protocol. They have the magical this, the magical that. And the reality is, is you'll have a coach also that he'll, um, and, and I don't blame him. I, I would do the same thing. You have a person who wins a show. So you constantly talk about that person. You don't talk about the four people who got in the last call out. So you see the genetically um, gifted person, and then you have the other four people that had a horrible experience. And so people, potential customers, they don't know that. They just see, well, he worked with so-and-so, so he must know his stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. And then sometimes they're disappointed. And um, I think that's why, uh, I, first of all, I've only asked one person to ever train with me. I've only asked one guy to let me coach him ever. His name is Josh Wade. Josh is the only guy. Still with you? He's still with me. Yeah, um, that guy gets peeled, man. Yeah. I know Josh well. You know what? I Josh, like, I said, Josh, I know your body type. You know how I know it? Because it's, it's my you. body type. <laughs> and I know I can get you continually shredded every show you do. You know, and he had worked with Hani and George. And the first thing we did was he gained 15 pounds. He won his pro card. And now I think his calling card, it's very fair to say, his condition. Mm-hmm. But um, I just, you know, if you don't, like, chase people down and people come to you, that's a good start, you know. And then kind of look at it. Does this, is this, am I going to be able to help them? Um, and I've had some clients that I've said to them, I don't know that I'm smart enough to get you any better. And they went to another coach and got better. Sometimes they went to another coach and they came back. You, you don't, there's no magical coach, myself included. There's no magical coach that has the magical solutions to everything. Um, the only thing I tell people to look out for is look out for people who have a system that they try to apply to everybody. Everybody, yeah. Like that you got to be really careful with. I don't have any system, high carb, low carb, high fat, low fat. I don't have any system. We're going to figure out what works best for you, and then we're going to roll with that. You just answered my next question, but I want you to dig into it. Is What are some of your foundational tenets? So if, if somebody said, hey, this is the way John Meadows coaches. Well, I mean, interestingly, it has nothing to do with nutrition. It has something to do with training, right? Because I'm still the training fanatic that we talked about. Yeah. And I don't think training gets enough attention. Uh, it you doesn't the choir, man. get nearly no attention, right? <laughs> yeah. And no. so I tell people, like, I'm going to expect you. You know, Ben, I've wrote somewhere between 35 and 40 12-week training programs in the last nine years. I love training. And it covers every situation imaginable as long as people have adequate equipment. 
But the first thing I want to do is I want them to train them to the point where there is no question in their mind if they're giving it their best effort. Mm-hmm. Like they need to leave the gym every day and they need to know, man, I didn't know I was capable of that. I, man, he, did you see this crazy stuff he had me do? I did it. Um, I want people to be shocked at what they can do because I don't think people give their bodies enough credit. Now, granted, they have to be fed and rested and things like that. Sure. But provided those things are in place, I don't think people give themselves enough credit for what they can accomplish training wise. I think, you know, I don't think that they understand where the line is, let alone cross it. You know, when we train together, like we got, we got to the line. Perception is everything, right? It's like, I worked hard today. No, you didn't. Like compared to what? Yeah. For who? (laughs) Yeah. Compared to what? Um, so I think the training part is, is my biggest passion. And, and nutritionally, I don't really have any things that I'm really dogmatic about. I mean, if I was, if I was going to say there's one thing that I'm dogmatic about is recovery. And I do believe the proper nutrition around your training itself provides for a much better recovery. And I think a recovered athlete in the long run is always going to, you're going to get them to their potential the fastest and probably the most healthiest. So I do believe in a very focused amount of nutrition around their training um, to achieve better recovery. And, you know, then I would also say that there's a lot of little things that people don't pay attention to, um, like sleep, for example. You know, if you don't get enough sleep, your insulin sensitivity is going downhill, your ghrelin hormone levels are going up, you're hungry, your leptin's going down, you don't know when you're full your cortisol levels are going up. You have all these things going haywire. And so, I mean, there are little things like that that I like to pay attention to, but you know, at the end of the day, you've got to have people train hard. That's number one. And then you've got to have them recover from it. Like it doesn't do any good to train hard if you don't recover. So I'm a big, big believer in eating for recovery and doing those other things like sleeping. Um, I know you're big into meditation. That's absolutely phenomenal for recovery. Actually. Um, I believe it is. So oh, for sure. It's you know, autonomic control, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome for recovery. So I think when you can get people in a kind of that state of they're training hard, they're recovering, then hey, you can play around. Do you need more carbs? Do you need less carbs? Do you need more fat? Do you need less fat? I think that, you know, not, a, not a big deal, but, um, so I would say training hard, you know, recovering from that training and, and surrounding yourself with good people. Be happy, right? Be, be happy, man. Man, I'd love to talk about um, some of your mechanisms of progression and training because I think a lot, again, I, I'm a training guy, man, like I always have been, right? And I'm like, I, I, I always say to people, like people say, oh, nutrition is most important. I say, well, yeah, only if you don't know how to train. Right, right. <laughs> right? Like, because when you know how to train, you get this, your margin for error is massive on your nutrition. Like if, when we have hard workouts, go eat six donuts. Because there's no way you're getting fat. Right. <laughs> right. Your, your body's burning hot, man. Your body's on fire. Yeah. Like you're burned through some, like when you actually have hard workouts and it's consistent, your, your calorie consumption, it goes through the roof. Right. Like, you know, I'm sure you've been on massive loads of calories at some point in your life. I'm not sure if your GI tract affects that, but like when I was training hard, I could eat six, 7,000 calories a day and still be hungry and yeah. still be lean and like growing where when you're not training hard, you can barely eat 2,500 calories and it's, you know, you're, it's just a different spectrum nobody trains hard man like so few people train hard i'd love to talk about some of your maybe it's psychological maybe it's tactical in the the workout mechanisms for for um increasing work capacity or how you kind of approach it with your clients yeah absolutely so i i look at training as you have different mini workouts within the workout and 
I think about training, first of all, very fundamentally, um, mind-muscle connection. If you're, if you're going to train, let's say, your chest, are you going to feel your chest, or are you one of those people that you feel in your front delts or your triceps? So you've got to find exercises for people that they feel right. Now, a lot of times what's going to happen is um, this is what you teach. If they don't know how to put their body in the right position, they're never going to be able to feel it. So you yeah. have to have a mastery over mechanics, you know, uh, body position, you know, all those things has to be in order. And then you have to much more simple than people think. And I like to always stress that, right. It's it's not complicated. It just takes thought. It just takes some thought. And, you know, sometimes it's the little things it's, you know, maybe lift your chest a little bit when you're doing a press, don't let your, you know, sternum, you know, cave in sometimes little things like that. But, but I like to find an exercise that people feel really well Mm -hmm. and get the blood pumping and get going. Uh, I, I would much rather see somebody do that than actually a compound movement first. Like I'm not a big believer in doing a bench press first, for example, for longevity reasons. Um, and when I started doing this, it was blasphemy because everybody said, well, John, you want to do your compound movements when you're most strong. And I said, okay, yeah, well, I took that approach and I almost had 50 different injuries. So I don't care what the studies say. I don't care that they say you can get an extra 3% of strength on that. I know what I know is my tendons and connective tissue felt terrible. And um, so I started moving compound movements second. Now, I like to execute compound movements a little differently than most people. I think we all like to do our very controlled eccentric uh, movements, but I like to train very explosively. Uh, I like to concentric and eccentric or just concentric concentric. I like to train explosively. Now there's a, there's a couple things that that go with that. So concentrically, if all your, if all of your reps are very explosive and they're very high velocity, you're probably not going to get very big. You're just going to teach your body how to be explosive. And that's great for athletes. But what I do is it's, I think of it as a built-in logbook. I'll have a target number of reps. Let's say it's eight reps. Let's say you're doing an incline bench press and it's eight reps. I want you to keep pressing that bar up as hard and as fast as you can because what happens when you're trying to be explosive? What happens with your nervous system? You fire, as you fire it, right? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean the mechanical loading on the muscle fiber is what it needs to be, but guess what? I want you to keep adding weight as you go until you can barely get that number, that barely get that eight. And if you've done that, then you've pushed yourself as hard as you can in that rep range. So you've loaded the fiber. And guess what? The, the last set, the last reps, they're not going to be explosive. They're going to be grinders. Right. So now if you want to get into the but science, you're still trying so to you've move got actinomycin, you, you know, you've got the mechanical loading that you need. But I love that explosive training. And then you continually add weight. Now all of a sudden the rep speed is going to slow down. You're going to grow a little bit more. But I like to train people like that. I, I'm not so much like if someone's doing an incline bench press, I'm not so much let's completely isolate our chest. It's okay if your chest works a little. It's okay if your triceps work a little. I want that thing firing. I want you firing like an athlete, moving weight. Do you know the only uh, objection I would have to that is that mechanically everyone's going to use a different percentage of muscles, right? So just because we're on an incline, you may be really, really connected. Your chest may fire really well. Someone else might fire at all. And the more fatigued they get, the faster they try to go. And that would be the only variance, yeah. right? So yeah. the only asterisk I would put beside that is learn the movement first. Like right. 
Learn, learn to learn to master this movement first. Yeah, and once yeah. you have, if you don't master the movement, then you can throw that advice out the window. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And that, <laughs> yeah. That's but you have to you have to put that asterisk there because yeah. people go, oh, well, John Meadows says do it like this. Well, yeah, but John Meadows is a master in the gym. You get some seventeen or twenty two year old kid going, hey man, John Meadows should move fast, but the movement doesn't look the way yours does. Now he's got shoulder problems. Now he's got bicep tendonitis. Yeah, so, you know, absolutely. like, yeah, hundred percent. It has to be acknowledged that um, you know, absolutely, like. If you can move a weight fast, you're going to have a greater neurological output. Yeah. But let's make sure you're doing it correctly first. Yeah. And yeah. That, that sometimes takes months, years for some people to master movements. Some body parts you get real easily. Some parts take longer. I feel like with my back, I feel like it took me decades to master some of that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. not decades. Do you, do you know the irony of it? I, t- I teach you know my classes or my, my courses and stuff around the world. And um, I, the, the time when I learned how to train back is when I retired. Do you know why? <laughs> it's funny. Because when I was competing, I was I was objectively attached to the day-to-day outcome of the workout. Like I needed to have a crushing workout or I felt like, a, like I failed. Yeah. Like I was pissed off if my workout wasn't amazing. So I was attached to like, well, I'm really good at this. I kind of feel that really well. I had to work really, really hard. When I was able to step back from the workouts and just objectively look and go, what do I actually need to do to challenge this muscle? Not being attached to like the day, the output that day. What I'm attached to is like, is this exercise being done really, really well and challenging the muscle really, really well? So I didn't care about load. Yeah. I was like, let's just learn how to contract this and challenge the muscle. I finally figured it out. And like, I'm like, why hasn't anybody told me this shit before? Like <laughs> some really, really simple things. And we're like, oh my goodness. If I would have done this five years ago, I would have been a different person. And it wasn't that I didn't have the ability to build it. It wasn't that it was it was a genetically weak body part for me. It wasn't that I had, you know, short muscle bellies. It was I just didn't know how to do it because I was so attached. Every day has to be the hardest workout. I have right. to crush it today. Right. I wasn't willing to step back and objectively assess and go, oh, well, I'm just doing that wrong. And as soon as I changed it, my back my back Well, back that's responded. tremendous advice in general for people. I mean, just in general for training, that's tremendous advice. Like sometimes you got to step back, man. You know? It's very hard when you're in yeah. it, right? Because especially, yeah. you know, as a pro bodybuilder, you get it. You have pressures yeah. both from yourself and from your external environment, from your sponsors. I have to perform. I have to look a certain way, especially on a weak body part. You can't waste a workout. Like we're told as bodybuilders, you better not waste a workout, man. You got to have every workout. You only got 50 workouts this year. You better get them <laughs> in, man. You yeah. know, and, and you're so attached to the day-to-day that you're not willing to step back and go, you know what? I need six weeks to learn how to do this exercise properly because my body's become really, really good at compensating and using my strengths, but it doesn't want to use my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You know, so I became really good at doing rope. Man, I was doing five plate bent rows for, with strict with strict form. My rear delts got massive, right? <laughs> my forearm flexors hurt really bad. My elbows hurt a lot. My lats didn't grow. I didn't yeah. do it correctly to challenge my lats. So right. there has to be that phase of acknowledging that, oh, well, what muscle's actually working? And you get it. Like, you got to feel the muscle. You got to make sure that's contracting first. And right. then we could start playing yeah, with you, other you interested variables. There. Yeah, you got to start there, you know. So I do the explosive stuff. Then I like to move on to the stuff that I know is probably your favorite. And that's the, this, uh, I'm just going to call it the crazy pump stuff, super max mm-hmm. pump stuff. You know, you're going to really find out what you're made of. You're going to do eight reps. You're going to drop a little bit of weight and do another two, drop a little weight and do another two. You're going to really load the muscle fibers, start heating in a different way. I don't, I think what is the buzzword now? Metabolic training or something mm-hmm. like that, <laughs> um, where you're really challenging yourself and, you know, there's some other mechanisms for growth that are present, but as a bodybuilder, we love that crazy pump. And 
for me, it was, you know, people talk about beating a logbook. They talk about beating numbers, which is great. But for me, that third phase, being able to do something I didn't maybe be able to think I would do is how I beat my logbook. I had this thing in my head that said, man, this sounds crazy. But you know what? I'm going to do it. You oh, know? yeah. And so, you know, that's when you get those. That's when you throw out the, you know, do a couple, what I would typically do, Ben, is I'll do a couple sets just to get to a working weight, nothing hard. And then you get to a weight where you're, you're in the groove. Okay. Now we're going to do one set and we're going to go really hard. And this so is, I will never forget your phrase, get your balls out of your purse. <laughs> Did I get it? Yes. Yeah. So this is to get the balls out of your purse. Set. And this is where I would say 99% of people, they don't get to this. Right. So then you do that set. You know, today, for example, Yvonne and I were training. We were on a belt squat. We put a weight on there that was a really tough eight. And then we didn't pull two plates off and do another eight. We pulled one plate off and did three. Then we pulled another plate off and did two. Then we pulled another plate off and did two. So every rep was really hard. Do you know who does that? Charles Glass. You ever train with Charles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never trained with him personally, but. Yeah. So when when people advocate, like, drop sets, they usually like, oh, like, take a good amount of weight off and keep going. Charles will take like one pin down or he'll take like a 10 off and he'll be like, grind it out, man, grind it out. And yeah. you end up doing 25 reps, but it's like every every single rep is a grinder. Every rep is hard. Yeah. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. I but. mean, and that's mechanical loading at its finest mm-hmm. on a muscle fiber. And then you throw in all the other, other technical stuff, the lactate. And all. Um, so at some point, um, after you get a really good pump, in uh, that one set should accomplish that. I like to finish my workouts with a, with a movement that really accentuates range of motion, um, something where you're working at a long muscle length. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of benefit to training a long muscle length. Yep. I, th- I think it's a lot safer to do it at that point in the workout as opposed to doing it early in the workout. So strategically, I think it makes sense to put those last. And there's a lot of cool things that can happen. You, you know, you got such a crazy pump, maybe you get some – Maybe you even get some occlusion out of it. You get some pressure against blood vessels, vasculature. Um, you know, maybe you get some uh, muscle growth that's the muscle, you know, because muscle actually actually can get longer too. I'm not saying change the origin search. I'm not saying sure, that. I'm just, just saying that can actually. Fibrous, sure. Yeah. So there are some cool things that happen there. Um, but um, I think it just feels really good. Like, you know, if you were cranking on your chest, for example, then you've, and you got to your fourth exercise and it might be one or two sets where you're really working at a long muscle length safely. Um, I think that that is a really good approach to. And, and functionally as well, right? Cause uh, the more we shorten muscles, the more muscles can actually literally physically shorten. Then we start pulling ourselves out of range. So the idea of, of uh, accessing those length and ranges that maybe most people don't pay attention to and like extreme lengthen, right? Like right. get as far as it can physically go. I think there's probably a functional value to maintaining integrity around joints yeah. to um, just making sure your body can always go there under control with contractile ability. And then, you know, extending that as you continue to hypertrophy your body because we don't want those muscles to get shorter. Ultimately, we want to maintain functional ranges. Right, right. And I, I mean, so that, that's kind of like a, that's kind of like the 10,000-foot view of what I like to do. And I think it's laid out in a way that makes sense. I think it's strategic. So then it just becomes a game of what you always say, let's find the exercises that work for you mm-hmm. and fit them into that general philosophy and go to town. 
Yeah. So one thing you said in there, like you thought I liked hypertrophy or like higher volume or like those, those hard sets. And you're absolutely right. During my career, like I was a massive volume guy, right? I love doing tremendous amount of volume, but I find actually now that I've become more of an advocate of really heavy loads rather than uh, massive amounts of volume for most people first. And I'll tell you why. Most people in our society are so sympathetically driven of the autonomic nervous system, right? Sympathetic, mm -hmm. parasympathetic balance, that as we start accumulating more and more volume on their, their nervous system, it actually just puts most people, not everybody, into a high amount of sympathetic overdrive, high amount of cortisol, high amount of nor, uh, adrenaline, body starts breaking down rather than building up. So first, I like to have people accumulate strength, lower volume, and then as we can manage the sympathetic parasympathetic balance then we start to incorporate more volume so depending on someone's ability to recover from a strength-based stimulus now I'll start incorporating more uh you know high volume training because like when i was competing i loved volume mm -hmm. and i wasn't even aware of the whole uh, idea of parasympathetic like right. I, I didn't balance right. it out and i think i could have grown significantly better had I been aware of all these parasympathetic inputs that balance out this massive amount of sympathetic drive coming from the way that we trained. Um, so I, I always make sure that someone has the capacity, you know, I just envision like digging a hole, man. Like you dig in a hole today, you're digging a trench. You know, we want to dig a hole. We don't want to dig a, a trench. Yeah. yeah. So, and then if you're digging a trench, you better make sure that you're, you're filling that trench back in really quickly with, with meditation and breathing and grounding and earthing and all these things like getting outside and connecting with nature and loving your family and whatever it is, prayer, whatever makes you um, calm and fulfilled and loved mm -hmm. and you know, ultimately a better human being. Yeah. Um, if we can do all those things, now we can earn the right to do those high volume, you know, to use your term, the challenge style workouts where we're really pushing the envelope and actually be able to recover from it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, everybody, you say, everybody talks about overtraining. It's not overtraining. It's just that you're so sympathetically dominant in everything else in your life. Your body doesn't have the ability to come back from any type that's of right. stimulus. That's right. You know, we've got our phone. Your body's basically constantly running away from the lion that's in the room, yeah. right? You just you're, turn into fight or flight. It's it's crazy. You know, you get, even getting on the road, man. Like I have this this awareness some days when I'm driving in a car. Like you drive past a thousand people in a day, and every one of those person has your life in their hands. You know, one of my employees at the gym recently got in a car accident. He's driving down the road. Um, to a two-lane highway, lady drives across the road, drives in front of him, hits him, knocks his car off the road. He's just driving along, like going home from work, man. And the guy's lucky to be alive. And like, you just don't think about the fact that you know every every single person I drive past at the end of the day when I arrive to my destination, I say thank you to every one of those people for paying attention, for not being on their phone, for you know having the the competency to actually get home and allow me to get home to my family. Dude, I was right. driving in Australia. I was driving on the other side of the road you know five hours a day by the bicycles was that by the people running bicycles yeah well just just everybody man. <laughs> it scares me man <laughs> oh everybody and you're like man i'm so grateful that you're paying attention enough to allow me to get home safely to yeah. my family today because man it, just the fact that this guy was driven off the road like yeah. he was, she literally t-boned him i don't know if she was texting or what the hell she was doing but so sad to think about the fact that we're even allowed to have phones in the car, man. Like, there should be a rule where once you're moving, the phone turns off. Like, yeah. GPS or not, like, the shit gets turned off. So, because four months ago, we had somebody um, on a text on the phone drive by our house on this highway right here beside us, for mm -hmm. those of you listening. Hit a telephone pole, drove through it, and drove through our front yard right out here in front where my kids and I always play football. And I was just like, what if we'd have been out there? 
you know, like, it's scary. She drove right through our yard, right through our front yard, and was sitting right there by her mailbox. And sitting there texting on her phone. So. Yeah. And you know what? We're all guilty of it, man. And I'm much more aware of it now. Like, so the, the habit used to be you stop at a light, you pick up your phone, check your phone because you're sitting in a light for five, you know, whatever, 30 seconds or we're too impatient to sit there. Now it's like, I don't even do that, man. Like, Maybe it's a GPS where if you check in that, you're like, yeah, hey, I need to know where I'm going. Yeah. But other than that, like, I'm, I, even when I'm driving in the car and I'm not driving, I'm still aware of not using my phone because, one, I want to pay attention. Two, I don't want to create the habit of, like, always needing to have my phone in my hands because, it, I mean, it's addictive. Like, whether you're, not, whether you're a strong and aware person or not, it's an addictive thing because you're yeah. just a human, man. You're, you're just a, ultimately this this bionic robot that responds to <laughs> well ultimately you respond to, to hits of neurochemicals in your right. in your brain either you're going to get dopamine you're going to do more of it you're not going to get dopamine you're not going to do more of it it's really that simple yeah. right maybe maybe not but um, but yeah I, I try to be aware of the fact that like I'm not going to create this bad habit because at the end of the day that bad habit could be the very thing that, that ends it for, for you at any time any time very cool yeah and I'm going to let you get back to your amazing family. <laughs> but I'm so grateful for our conversation, man. I hope we get to connect again this weekend. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Um, I, I appreciate it. I, I, um, I, I'm always amazed that people even want to hear my opinion still on things. So and you're I, doing I, I'm awesome very stuff, humbled buddy. by you having me on, so thank and you. And, dude, you're one of the greats in the industry, and I hope you continue to do it. And, and, and most importantly, know that people, uh, all the listeners and myself, are watching and, and we're listening. And... We're grateful for people like you leading the next generation. You know, I talk about that all the time. One of my greatest um, new motivations, or maybe just life motivations, is how do we create the next generation to be better than ours? Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just like, hey, I want me to be great. Like, I don't, like, I, I'm important. I want, I want to be great, but not because I want to be great to be great. I want to be great because I want to learn to teach the people that follow me to, to do better things and that starts with our children that starts with our family and then how do we create those children to be great leaders and how do we create the next generation of fitness people to be strong moral leaders right yeah. and what you're talking about is the top of maslow's hierarchy actually self-actualization self-actualization yeah yeah i think um yeah. the, it, it's so important man like i think you and i had some great leaders who some people who influenced us and how do we now pass that on so the next generation can be even better and drive the human species to a place that it, it's hopefully never been? And, and yeah. I think we're going to experience some massive amounts of pain, not just us, but as a species, but we're also going to experience massive amounts of growth and opportunity. And uh, I think maybe you have the opportunity to choose which direction you go or what you experience. So That's right. uh, we can influence more people to do great things. That's right. I appreciate you, man. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, John. All right, that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. If you haven't already subscribed on iTunes, please do that. That drives this episode up in the rankings, allows to get cooler guests for you to learn from, for me to learn from, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, also, leave us a review if you enjoyed the episode. I'm sure you did because John is awesome. If you did enjoy the episode, head over to iTunes, leave us a review. If you enjoyed it, share it with at least one person you think will benefit from it and help us grow this mission of upgrading the health and consciousness of humanity. Have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in your greatest body. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.